Hello, and welcome to the Public Procurement Podcast with me, Pedro Teles. My interviewee today is Willem Jensen, a lecturer and PhD researcher at the Public Procurement Research Center of Utrecht University and Twente University. His PhD researches the influence of EU public procurement law on the performance of services by cooperating public authorities and issues of regulating and enforcing the make-or-buy decision of public authorities. He was a visiting scholar at the George Washington University in Washington, D.C. in the past. As he regularly publishes on this topic, we'll mostly be talking about in-house contracts and public-public cooperation in EU public procurement law during this interview. Hello, Willem. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Pedro. Uh, thank you very much for accepting to be interviewed for the podcast. You were selected a few months ago to come to the conference, but couldn't join us. So it's great to finally be speaking with you. Exactly. And I mean, let me begin by thanking you for the opportunity to, to discuss uh, public, public cooperation with you today. I mean, before we begin, I must say that your podcast series is, is truly a great project. I think it really personifies what academia is today in society. I mean, writing a paper, presenting it amongst peers is simply not sufficient anymore. And I think research must be relevant and accessible to society. And I think Twitter, LinkedIn, blogs, they can play an imperative role in that to get your message across. But I mean, truly, your podcast, they take it to the next level. And I hope that will continue for a while. Thank you very much. I certainly hope so. And um, I think this series is going to be 20 episodes long as the last one. But thank you very much for the for the very kind words as we start the podcast. So let's talk about in-house contracts. Why do you think discussing in-house contracts is important? That truly, like what I said just then, it's I think the perfect question to kick off our talk today. I mean, as I said, I believe the why question is very important, and I think the debate on the in-house doctrine and more particularly public cooperation, I think is important for a number of reasons. But maybe before we delve into more detailed conversation about the particularities of the court's jurisprudence or I suppose the, the codification of the 2014 directives, perhaps it's good to first briefly outline the basics of this doctrine, which is quite technical, but if you'll allow me, I'll, I will aim to briefly sketch their contours. Of course. Good. So first, I think it's important to consider that the basic notion of, EU, of the EU public procurement rules is that they are only applicable if a contracting authority awards a public contract to a separate entity. Now, this means that a contracting authority itself is, I suppose, always allowed to provide services with its own departments. Uh, now, this type of delivery falls outside the scope of EU public procurement law uh, and outside of the treaties. This would, for instance, be a, um, an IT department of a municipality that creates and maintains its own digital infrastructure or a waste management department of the same town that picks up your bag of rubbish uh, every Monday morning. Now, where it becomes difficult, though, is when things aren't as straightforward anymore as these situations. So the question really is, and that's the question that the in-house doctrine raises, is how do these rules apply within the public sector when contracting authorities decide to work together for the delivery of their tasks? And this is, I think, where the in-house doctrine starts. It all begins with considering that there's no express exemption for contracting authorities that want to provide services in cooperation with others. I think this means that the rules on transparency and equality that we hold dear in the EU public procurement directives, in principle, apply to contractual agreements between two contracting authorities or between a contracting authority and, a, for instance, a, a privatized authority. Uh, which was previously part of the contracting authority itself. Now, this also doesn't mean that all of these contractual agreements are public contracts that must be put up for tender. Even if they qualify as a public contract, they can be exempted from a duty to tender. And I think it's important to briefly touch upon three of these alternatives that can 
exempt a public contract from the, from this duty. Uh, the first one is the, the oldest possibility to do so is to grant an exclusive right to another contracting authority. Uh, this is currently vested in Article 12 of the new directives. Now, I won't go too much detail on this, but I mention it because it was the inapplicability of this exemption in TECOL in the year 99 of the last century that made the Court of Justice decide to lay the foundations for the in-house doctrine. In this case, the applicable directive on supply contracts did not contain an exclusive right exemption at the time, which did exist in the directive on public service contracts. But as a consequence, the court decided to introduce two criteria, which would deem the award of a public contract exempt from the scope of EU public procurement law. Now, on the one hand, the awarding authority has to exercise control over the receiving entity. This control has to be similar to the type of control which it exercises over its own departments. I think this is where you clearly see the link with the discretionary power of a public authority to provide services with your own departments. And on top of this control criterion, the controlled entity also has to perform the essential part of its activities. So I suppose, briefly said, formal independence must be trumped by practical dependence. Or as a person at a conference once said, just like the Spice Girls, when two become one. <laughs> so since then, numerous cases before the court have further clarified these two criteria, and I believe... What's caused a lot of confusion is the different names that it's gotten. It's been called quasi-in-house, vertical cooperation, institutionalized exemption. Me, myself, I prefer institutionalized as it actually shows that the cooperation is institutionalized in a separate entity. But I suppose that's really uh, your perfect, uh, your, your own preference. Now, I'll quickly go on to the, the second uh, or the third, really, exemption or the second exemption that was created by the court. In 2009, when it was faced again with a scenario where it deemed the, these technical criteria inapplicable, but it decided to introduce another type of exemption in an infringement procedure of the Commission against Germany. Now, in this case, the court ruled that a contractual agreement can be exempted if the cooperation between contracting authorities, which does not rely on a separate entity, is one governed by considerations and requirements relating to the pursuit of objectives in the public interest and that the principle of equal treatment is respected so that no private undertaking is placed in an advantageous position when compared to its competitors. Now, this has since been referred to as the non-institutionalized exemption or horizontal cooperation. So, I think these are the basics of the, of the in-house doctrine. And now, to get back to your question after what I realized was a fairly long introduction, so why is it important to discuss these exemptions and why is it a good development that this line of case law has been codified in the directives? Well, as I said, there's a couple of reasons, I think. I believe the, the societal relevance of efficient and effective service provision by contracting authorities, which aims to ensure that best value for money is achieved, is probably the most important one. I mean, this means that rules should enable cooperation on the one hand and ban it if a public contract should be tendered in light of the internal market. Value for money is not one of the objectives of the directive. And as you said, probably public cooperation contracts are not covered by public procurement law because technically there's not a contract being awarded. So you're not going to the market. No, exactly. You are, you are absolutely right. I totally agree that on the European level, the directives focus on achieving the internal market. However, on the national level, we do have to deal with these type of arrangements and that they do limit to some extent what 
contracting authorities can do for society or how they organize their, their service provision. So I suppose, yes, on a more dogmatic uh, level, I completely agree with you. However, on a national implementation level, we're still faced with national goals, which are often to achieve uh, best value for money. That's true. Yeah. So I think the, the, the second reason is that there's a strong regulatory dilemma. And I suppose that also comes back in what I just previously said, is that EU public procurement law and the in-house doctrine, we aim to strike a balance between, on the one hand, allowing service provision by contracting authorities who wish to cooperate for the provision of services, and on the other hand, we try to achieve the main objective of this field of law, like you just said, uh, which is to create an internal market for public contracts. So clarity is very important for that, and I think that is often lacked in practice, which is particularly troublesome if we look at the court's move to apply these exemptions to other subject matters, such as concessions or perhaps even more in the future, to limited authorization schemes. And this is, I think, why I also welcome the codification of the in-house doctrine in Article 12, which in itself should be seen as, a, I think, a truly a milestone of EU public procurement law. And I think all of this, this is even more relevant when we consider that we've seen a rise in the popularity in many EU member states of these type of corporations, which are often in the form of shared service centers or other types of, uh, of cooperations. Okay. Going into the directive 2014-24, why do you think that the codification occur and why do you think that we have so many many exemptions on Article 12 nowadays? Yeah, it's a, that's a great question, actually. I, I love looking at the sometimes ungraspable regulatory uh, party of the EU. <laughs> and sometimes things happen for no reason. I think yeah. sometimes they do, fortunately. But what's interesting here, though, is that what I think is very clear is that from the start of the reforms of the, the internal market from, say, 2010, when EU Commissioner or former EU Commissioner Monti at the time placed public procurement at the center of his vision for the future of the single market, the new framework was aimed to improve the efficiency of public spending by simplifying the existing rules and aimed to further flexibility when applying them. And I think in light of this, it was the, the EU legislature that deemed it important to clarify the rules where applicable to in-house procurement. But what we see in the, the expansion of these exemptions is that it's driven by a strong call from contracting authorities all over the EU who clearly found their ways to the Commission and to the European Parliament who wanted more flexibility and space to provide services together. And I think that's what mostly caused these, these exemptions to expand. Okay. So... What changed in terms of public-public cooperation between 2004 and 2014? Because if you look at the way that public-public cooperation is included in the new directive, is very different from what we had in, 20, in 2004. So what do you think changed between these two sets of directives? So I think when they were attempting to codify the TECOL ruling in 2004, it failed, obviously. We do not have the inclusion of Article 12 is unique in the sense that we didn't have it before. Of course, we had the exclusive right exemption, but perhaps this attempt failed at the time because either the member states were not able to construct a common wording for this exemption, as there had not been a lot of clarifications from the court following TECOL. And I suppose this can be explained again by the, the organizational differences between public, public cooperations across the EU. It would be great, actually, if everyone did things in the same way, which, which meant that legis making legislation would be a lot easier. But unfortunately, and I suppose luckily, we also, we, we're not faced with that, with that reality. 
On the other hand, I suppose the European legislature may have been hesitant, like I said before, to codify the jurisprudence at a stage where many questions and issues had not been decided upon. So what changed afterwards, like I said, I think the emphasis of public authorities in the form of contracting authorities wanting to jointly provide services grew substantially. And I think because of that, the boundaries of EU public procurement law also became more visible. And I suppose it made contracting authorities and competitors on the market who, who filed proceedings before the court more aware of those limitations. And with that came the call for more flexibility and legal certainty. And this is, interestingly enough, also reflected in the case law of the Court of Justice. The court was very hesitant to accept any of the cases put before it until 2007, when a clear turning point was visible in Taxa, in Coditel, when the court became more willing to accept and expand these, these exemptions. Now, in the past, it's been argued that this was partly due to the, the recognition of regional and local self-governance in, in the Lisbon Treaty. Of course, this is one example of how strongly the EU is changing and that there's not so much the, the EU level or the member state level anymore and the level of public authorities, but it's recognizing that national administrations are very complex and that we do have a local and a regional level that is also very important and that, that has a say when it comes to codifying or making legislation. Very well. Where do you stand in the argument about accepting or not private capital in public-public cooperation contracts under Article 12, Paragraph 3? In other words, are you siding with the Court of Justice in Coditel or parking Brixen? I think private capital out of all of um, the, the criteria that the Court has introduced is probably the most interesting. I mean, this is really where the state the market and their relationship really becomes visible and you can clearly see how the court is struggling to, to deal with this. Now, it's fair to say that the court has been very hesitant towards private capital and that has, is somewhat justified. The absolute ban provides absolute legal certainty, which is interesting and has some benefits because yes, there are risks involved when including private capital participation as the objectives of, of such parties can be different, which would mean that control cannot be exercised anymore. And on the other hand, it might favor these undertakings over their competitors, which appears to prevent any type of state aid. However, I do question whether an absolute ban is justified and completely necessary, particularly if one considers the practical and financial need for private capital investments that are very often necessary to be able to provide services uh, at a certain level. And also state aid law, if you compare it with this other field of law, is generally not as strict. I mean, it requires an assessment of exemptions. Even if state aid is found, it can still be justified. So this means that I see possibilities to introduce a different approach, which I suppose would be a presumption of diminished control. So the existence of private capital would presume that control is diminished. And I suppose the subsequent well, relevant question would then be if this means that decisive control is lost. Now, this was something that was advanced by the Advocate General in Stix Hakel. And this different approach would not necessarily exclude private majority shareholdings, but in that regard, it is unlikely that the minority public private holdings would be able to ensure decisive control over an entity. And I mean, in this respect, the higher the level of private participation, the more unlikely it would be that control could exist. And 
it's not just the, 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 the actual percentage, I think, that should be taken into account then. I mean, having, after having assessed that, I think the applicable national legislative framework would need to be considered as that can differ amongst member states in relation to the rights uh, that types of shareholdings give shareholders in practice. And if these rights are substantial, uh, which can, for instance, be the case with veto and blocking rights, decisive control would be unlikely to exist. And in addition to national legislation, the assessment would, I think, also need to include uh, some of the practical determinations of, of rights in the statutes and overarching agreements, which distribute these rights of shareholders and ex can extend the limits of, of, of their rights. So then if we look at the new directive, what's interesting is that the court is, or the court, I should say the, the legislature, <laughs> has in fact done all of this, but only for a very limited amount of situations. And this is where only direct private capital can be allowed if it concerns the non-controlling, non-blocking forms of, of participation, which are required by national legislative provisions in conformity with the treaty. And remarkably, which do not exert a decisive influence over the controlled legal person. So really what the legislature has done is just introduce this idea in a very small, on a very small scale, particularly because it requires this participation to be required by national legislative provisions. I mean, I haven't checked all of the, the member states, but so far what I've seen is that a very limited amount of countries, I think particularly France, uh, would be able to benefit from this this exemption. But in the Netherlands, we sure won't be able to use this, this, this exemption. So what I'm trying to say, I think the approach of the court is understandable, but I think there are certain ways that we can improve this test, particularly if you consider that the whole control test of institutionalized exemption is on a case-by-case -case approach, and to reject private capital to that extent is maybe a bit extreme. I have to say that on this occasion, I think I'm on the extreme side in terms of rejecting them private capital, at least where I stand now. The reason for that being that if we allow private capital to benefit from a public-public corporation contract or service that is being performed, effectively, we are allowing someone in the market, in the internal market, to benefit from public money, not as state aid, but as a service provider or at least by owning a part of a service provider that is in providing services for, for the public good, for example. In that sense, in my view, we're no longer talking about a public-public corporation. We're talking about something that involves private capital. And as such, at least that provision of capital should be subject to EU public procurement rules. Not because them joining the corporation will in itself generate any public procurement, but because at the tail end of the services that, has, that are going to be provided, effectively, we've got the procurement or a service that is being provided by the state in one way or another. So if we don't do that, the consequence is, and that's what I fear about this field, the consequence will be that companies will understand that in certain sectors, it may be easier to actually get in into those projects this way, instead of actually trying to win them outright as part of public procurement contracts and public procurement competition. And that may lead to regulatory capture, that may lead to a very close relationships between certain economic operators and, and, and the state. And I'm not sure, in my view and from my perspective, that will be much better off in the end. So I'm a little bit cagey about allowing private capital 
to be allowed into a public-public cooperation. So I fully understand why we should have this exemption in terms of allowing uh, contracting authorities to cooperate. I mean, that should be obviously the, the case. But I'm more and more reserved and I've got more reservations about allowing private capital in in these projects. Because even if you apply, let's say, the control test, even if you say that the, the economic operator, the private element of the public-public cooperation contract does not have a control, what if, if you have an arrangement where, let's say, most of the profits are derived from that public-public cooperation for the private contractor? You don't have any control. It's just the terms of the agreement. You raised some, some very valid points, I think. I think when I started answering your, your previous question, what makes it so difficult is when you start yeah, uh, mixing public money with, with private interests. And I totally agree with all the points you raise. What I think is going to be very difficult for future things to come. Let me just say, I think what, what's happened now in the directive to allow for private capital only in certain situations, I think that's very inconsistent. I mean, it shows that there's, there wasn't really a vision behind implementing such, yeah. such a thing. I think it's clearly uh, been put in by one or a couple of member states that, that wanted to benefit from this. So, but if you then consider more broadly on what the benefits of private capital could be for the, the, the performance of uh, or the realization of certain projects, I think still that the, the court's approach is too strict. And I think some of the, the points you raised, I mean, if the benefits or if the disadvantages of including private capital are really that, that strong, there's always the option to, to tender that type of capital participation to still create some type of competition to open it up to the market. So the actually the participation would, would still be uh, in need of obliging with the public procurement rules, which I think would solve a lot of the issues that you raised in the end. Yeah, but there's no obligation in doing that. So there's no obligation in privatizing because effectively you're talking about a partial privatization of a service. There's no obligation in tendering. And I agree with you, and I think that's one of the limitations we have in terms of public procurement rules is, yes, public procurement only deals with actually uh, expenditures or expenses made by the state, so buying something. It does not deal with public-private relationships that may influence the internal market if what is happening is money coming the other, in the other direction, so money coming into the state. But yeah, sorry. No, no, no. I think uh, what actually your questions, it just made me realize how interesting public procurement really is, I suppose, because we're fortunate enough to be practicing or studying a certain field of law that touches upon so many interesting subjects in society, even though the actual content of, of public procurement procedures as such and their, and their focus is sometimes limited. And, but it does touch upon a lot of other fields of law, a lot of societal relevant issues, which, which makes it very exciting to, to go to work every day, I find. Okay. One final question. How can we solve the legal uncertainties arising from Article 12, Paragraph 4? So what would you do to improve Article 12, Paragraph 4 of the Directive? Ooh, you've left, I think, the, the, the biggest and toughest question for the last one. <laughs> the last. <laughs> um, I think there's a lot of uh, people have looked at this exemption, a lot of people have discussed it, and it's still a very difficult exemption to grasp. And I suppose the newly introduced activities criterion appears to be least troublesome, but it's mostly because of the use of terms such as public services governed by considerations relating to the public interest that cause difficulties and, and leave open much room for interpretation. 
And because these terms differ with regard to national and cultural traditions, or at least the way it's been defined over the years, it's nearly impossible for the court to give a clear-cut answer. Now, I think that practical cases before the court will undoubtedly still clarify these criteria, but only on a case-by-case basis, such as what happened when the court clarified that cleaning services were not in the public interest, as in the case of Piepenbrock. But still, I think there's a lot of open questions in this regard, which I hope that the court will address in the future. So say, for instance, the court used to emphasize that, that no private provider can be placed in a position of competitive advantage. And this is not, we cannot find this anymore in the, in the, these, in the codified criteria. So it, it can be questions what, what the actual relevance of this still is. And more specifically, I think, and that's where I think a bit of fundamental reasoning lacks is how a corporation, or at least I wonder how a corporation, which can have private capital participation in the participating bodies, and which is active on the market for 20% of its activities, can still be governed by considerations relating to the public interest. It's a very difficult question, and let's hope that the cases before the court will come actually address some, and there's more of these uncertainties. And I think I believe, generally speaking, that more attention should be paid in Europe on the European level and on the national level to identify the type of services that can rely on these exemptions, or at least how we come to a conclusion that something is in the general interest. I mean, this is a very old debate, but it's still so relevant as we still find it in much, much legislation. I think on a more broader level, the the potential extensive application of these exemptions in practice raises more fundamental questions of how we approach the announced doctrine, mostly because the focus of these exemptions has always been of an organizational nature. How a service is organized depicts the influence of EU public procurement law. So I suppose this, this would bring me to my push to gain have more attention to the phase prior to, to procurement, in which a public authority decides which type of services it deems best for society, as that is where the most economic and societal relevance lies. And don't get me wrong, this is a very difficult area to to think about regulation, to think about enforcement, to think about how do we improve this. And I think this is also partially why it's currently a national matter. I mean, it's, it's left still unregulated also on the national level, but definitely on the EU level, because it delves so deep into the roots of the organization of many member states. Article 345 of the treaty, the Protocol on Services of General Interest, it recognizes firmly that national member states have held their discretion to define these services. But nonetheless, I think the effects of in-house performance on the market are not necessarily taken into account very often. Innovation, sustainability can be hampered by in-house performance. It can also be advanced by in-house performance. And that's probably even more predominant and important from a legal perspective is that third parties have no say in this uh, decision-making process before procurement or in-house performance, whereas their interests are often affected by, by the internalization of a public contract, which means there's a lack of foreseeability as well. Okay, I think that's a great way to end the program. Willem, thank you very much for accepting the invitation to come to the show and for the, the last half an hour. Yeah, perfect. It's been an absolute pleasure. Good luck with the rest of the series. Thank you. You can find me at my blog, tells.eu, or on Twitter where I use two handles, at Detic for general discussion and at Public Procure for public procurement-related topics. As ever, I'm very grateful for the support of the British Academy Rising Star Engagement Awards, which made possible this project. Till next time.